0: My name is Laura Dawn, and you're listening to episode number 53 of the Psychedelic Leadership Podcast, featuring my conversation with Natasha Mason, PhD, who's at the forefront of researching psychedelics and creativity. On the acute testing
1: day, they filled out a questionnaire of spontaneous creativity. So this is just us asking them to Think over the, their entire psychedelic or placebo experience and rates, to what degree did they experience insights into connections that had previously been troubling them? To what degree did they have original thoughts? And here in the psilocybin group they had a, a lot more, rated a lot more of this kind of spontaneous insights versus the placebo group. And what we saw actually was that the more spontaneous insights, the more spontaneous creativity, the day of, so under a psychedelic, the more new ideas they came up with seven days later.
0: In your own personal experience, in the journeys that you've had with psychedelics or sacred plant medicines, have you found yourself experiencing more meaningful insights or more spontaneous creative insights, those aha moments that can arise in the psychedelic journey that have left a lasting impression on your life? I know I certainly have some creative insights which have actually completely changed the course of my life. Creativity, and specifically creative thinking and creative problem solving, are being called the most important skill sets to cultivate for the leaders of our time. And when I first started coming across statements like this, I started asking myself, what exactly is creative thinking, how do we define it, and how do we get better at it? And does the research show that psychedelics can help us think more creatively? And this line of inquiry really struck a chord with me a few years ago, and many of you know this topic is near and dear to my heart, and it's why I went back to graduate school. Because, as it turns out, there's actually very little research that's been done with psychedelics exploring the effect of psychedelic experiences on different aspects of creativity. And it makes sense. You know, psychedelics are hard enough to pin down on their own, and so is creativity. They're both incredibly complex, very multifaceted, so of course, combining them together is gonna make for such interesting exploration. But I mean, we don't have to look very far to make an argument that psychedelics have had a widespread influence on the creative expression of our culture, and not just our culture, but many, many other cultures as well. And again, it's hard to measure that. But now some research is starting to happen. And I really believe that we are truly at the beginning of the exploration of how psychedelics can influence various aspects of creativity. And Natasha Mason, who's a PhD, who's my guest on the show today, she is at the forefront of this research and her paper titled Spontaneous and Deliberate Creative Cognition During and After Psilocybin Exposure, which is one of the first double blind, placebo, control studies directly exploring psychedelics and creative cognition. So I am so grateful for Natasha and her pioneering work in this space. And it was actually really just so awesome to be able to cite research like hers. I know I cited her paper and Manesh's paper quite a few times throughout my graduate degree. So I'm so grateful for that. Okay, so a little bit about Natasha. She is a postdoc at Maastricht University Department of Psychopharmacology. She has a background in neuropsychology and pharmacy utilizing multimodal study designs. Her current research assesses drug-induced neuroadaptations and their influence on affect, behavior, and cognition. And it was so fun to actually discover in this conversation that another paper by a mutual friend of ours, Manesh Gern, called Updating the Dynamic Framework of Thought, Creativity, and Psychedelics, which you guys have heard me talk about before in the past, that paper influenced both of our paths, mine and Natasha's quite significantly. And I interviewed Manesh Gern all the way back at episode number five, still one of my favorite conversations to this day, called This Is Your Brain on Psychedelics. And if you haven't yet listened to that episode, I highly recommend tuning into that one. It was really, really good. And it was because of this paper that Manesh wrote that Dr. Robin Cart Harris was a co-author on that I decided to go back to graduate school to get my master's in science in creativity studies and change leadership, which I'm thrilled to announce that I only have one class left until I graduate. Hallelujah. And I've been focusing my entire degree on the intersection between psychedelics, creativity and leadership, specifically creative thinking and creative problem-solving. And so you'll hear me share some of that work that I've been doing in graduate school throughout this episode as well, because Natasha and I were kind of just jamming out back and forth. And it's so nice to have conversations with people like Natasha and Manesh Gern, who have also spent a significant amount of time thinking about psychedelics and how they might influence creative cognition. And actually, Manash just sent me a link on WhatsApp the other day linking to a new paper that just got released called Psychedelics as Potential Catalysts of Scientific Creativity and Insight, led by Sam Gandhi. In case you want to check that out as well, it's fresh off the press, just in case this intersection between psychedelics and creative cognition inspires you and lights you up like it does for me. And you can easily access all of these links to the research papers that I'm mentioning here at lauradawn.co forward slash 53, along with all the other resources mentioned throughout this conversation. Now, before we dive in, I just want to encourage you and inspire you to remember that you are creative by definition of being alive and that being creative is your birthright. I know so many people still have these old outdated beliefs, these old myths about creativity, that there are creative geniuses, and then there are everyone else. And right now we are being called to reclaim that birthright so that we can think bigger and open up and expand our perceptual field of awareness and start to think differently. Because, as Einstein said, we can't solve our problems at the same level of thinking that created them. And we are collectively facing some major challenges right now. We are moving through the portal, the cocoon of metamorphosis, collectively where old systems are falling by the wayside and we need to find solutions to the challenges that we face. And being at the forefront of creative problem solving, leadership, and psychedelics, I've really applied what I've been learning in graduate school to help create solutions to some of the big challenges that we're facing, especially in the psychedelic space right now. And of course, some of the big topics that are up right now are reciprocity, a lot more people starting to become aware of reciprocity and starting to ask, how do we give back to indigenous cultures, ethics... Definitely up in the space, as well as plant medicine conservation. You know, a lot more people are starting to become aware that there's a huge increase in demand for these sacred medicines, and that's putting pressures on indigenous communities and the biocultures from which these medicines come. And I know so many of us have received so many incredible benefits from ceremony and sacred plant medicines. And I've heard more and more people starting to talk about wanting to be in right relationship with the traditional knowledge holders from which these medicines come and not knowing how to support and give back to indigenous communities and not sure how to make a donation or where that money actually goes. And so, I'm helping to steward the launch of Grow Medicine in collaboration with the Indigenous Medicine Conservation Fund. And Grow Medicine is an easy-to-use donation-based platform to support plant medicine conservation, Indigenous sovereignty, and biocultural diversity. And starting on May 31st, you can make a donation directly to Indigenous-led initiatives as a way to step towards being in right relationship with the traditional knowledge-holders of these medicines. And so it's really easy to use. You just go to growmedicine.com, you select the keystone medicine you want to support, the medicine that has enriched your life and has benefited you. And now this is an easy way to share in those benefits and support these communities in return. And you can pick a donation amount and I highly encourage you to hit make this a monthly donation. And we're really holding the vision that grow medicine becomes a very integrated part of our medicine movement and our psychedelic communities. And your donation through Grow Medicine goes towards indigenous-led initiatives, and we lay out exactly what those initiatives are on each page once you click on the keystone medicine, brings you to the donation page for that medicine, and then it outlines the, the full scope of the project that your donation goes towards supporting. And these are indigenous-led initiatives that are strengthening their communities in their efforts to conserve keystone plant medicines and traditional non knowledge that they rely on for their healing and cultural survival. And so we're calling in support to help amplify this message on launch. And you can go to growmedicine.com forward slash support to sign up and receive some of the emails that we'll be sharing as we go into our very first launch week, May 31st through June 10th. That's our big promotional launch window. So if you want to help support this message and help share it with your communities, we would so, so appreciate that. All right, friends, that was a big download on Grow Medicine. Thank you so much for hanging with me through that one. I'm going to leave you with a song called Be Like Water by my dear medicine sister, Mary Isis. I know I've featured Mary quite a few times before on the show, but I just love her music so much. And at one point I was obsessed with this song, Be Like Water. There is this verse that's all about activating and opening up your creative channel. and there was definitely a moment in time where I was listening to this song on repeat. I know some of you have heard me talk about this before, the combination between microdosing and movement, especially dance and music that really lights me up is like the Trinity that unlocks my flow states, opens my creative channel. And really moves me to a place that allows me to get out of the way so I can create from a place that's much bigger than myself. You know, it's like that, that direct connection to spirit kind of creation. And that's the place that I like to create from. <laughs> all right, friends, I think that's all I wanted to share with you for today. I hope you like to geek out on creative cognition and flow states and creative process and psychedelics as much as I do. If you love this topic, feel free to hit me up and share in your love for it because it's it's truly just my my joy channel. <laughs> I love exploring this intersection so, so much. And so without any further ado, here is my conversation with Natasha Mason. I think we should just dive right in and I'm so curious because I was looking at your, your bio and you have a background in neuropsychology and pharmacy and so I was curious if we could just start with a little bit of your professional background and how you found yourself now at the forefront of researching psychedelics and creativity.
1: Yeah, uh, it was, uh, it's been a long and winding road. <laughs> um, so I originally went to school for pharmacy. Um, so I've always been interested in how um, all drugs uh, can influence um, yeah, a person's thoughts, uh, both and and physiology, right? So I'm interested in drugs and treating people, mainly treating people uh, with um, psychological uh, disorders. So kind of growing up in a small town in Wisconsin, when you think drugs and mental health, they say, OK, go be a pharmacist. I was like, OK, sure, <laughs> I'll go be a pharmacist. And uh, so I, I went to school for that um and during this time, I also started gaining experience at uh different pharmacies, just behind the counter work, but also um dealing with and and listening to patients who are coming to pick up their prescription um and uh basically what that included was listening to a lot of people um yeah complain that the the drugs that the, we are giving them are not working or they are experiencing very negative side effects. Uh, particularly with these these drugs prescribed for depression and anxiety. Um, So this was quite discouraging to me, uh, and that's why am I going to school (laughs) for so long to just administer drugs that that don't help people? Um, So during this time, I started doing research in neuropsychopharmacology uh, and also started reading the literature, um, and I came across a paper by uh, Dr. Bolenweider in, in Zurich, so one of the the, the true leaders in this field, uh, stating that um, a hypothesis that a, a one-time ingestion of a psychedelic drug actually provides therapeutic relief uh, for days, months, maybe even years, uh, and also explaining the potential neuroplastic uh, effects of these substances, meaning it's not just a band-aid, it might act actually be uh, fixing something. Uh, And that's really just, I I thought that was amazing. Uh, We hadn't heard any of that in my pharmacy classes. There was nothing like that that existed for depression. So um, yeah, I just changed everything. (laughs) Uh, So I changed the pharmacy, I did more research. And uh, after my uh, bachelor's degree, I looked for groups who were um, studying these substances. Um, in humans and also studying how they worked. So that became my, my really big question is okay if we can find out how these substances work then then we can figure out what's going on in these diseases and, and we can we can help people. Um, and one of the only labs that was doing that was, was Maastricht University where I am now in the Netherlands. So I moved from the. US to the Netherlands and uh, did whatever I could to be a part of the group. um so i did a a a research master in in neuropsychology which also offered psychopharmacology classes and i did my internship with them and it worked really well stayed for a phd and now hopefully stay for longer so uh that's amazing. Yeah. That was my venturing into this,
0: into this field. <laughs> I love it. How one paper did that for you. One paper, actually that Manesh Gern, uh, that Dr. Robin Cart Harris co-authored on psychedelics and creativity. That was also the paper that did it for me to go back to graduate school. So I love that yeah. you have that parallel yeah. story. And so what are, what are you writing your PhD dissertation on?
1: Yeah. So my PhD is now completed. Um, so I, I defended it a year ago um, and yeah, it was a lot of different studies, but it, it was looking at uh, the effects of cannabis and also psychedelics. So it kind of had two streams of, of acute drug challenge studies uh, and looking at how these drugs change glutamates in the brain. So an important driver of neuroplasticity. Um, and then also looking at the behavioral consequences of this. And, and one of these consequences being uh, creativity
0: for, for Right. That's so interesting that the initial sort of entryway for you was looking at through the lens of mental illness, depression, for example. And then you made this jump from mental illness to creativity. So what inspired that jump? Because it feels like most people in the space, especially in research, are really still focused on what psychedelics can do to help the treatment of depression, PTSD, anxiety, and addiction. And I definitely feel like the forefront is moving into creativity. So you're, you know, right there, but what, what inspired you to make that jump?
1: Yeah. Uh, so there are two reasons for this. I mean, one is more mental health linked and one is more curiosity. So you have the curiosity side, which is all the anecdotal reports that people experience enhanced, creative capacity, um, after, during a psychedelic experience and after psychedelic use. So that's just fascinating and had not really been tested. Uh, There was some historical, really great historical, um, work, but yeah, they don't necessarily live up to the methodological rigor of today's, um, studies. So it's kind of hard to base conclusions off of them. Um, so there's that's okay. Let's actually see what's going on here because um, people haven't have have not done that yet. Um, but then there's also uh, yeah the mental health aspect. Um, so these drugs, as you um, stated, are being looked at as treatments for depression, anxiety, addiction, PTSD. Um, there are many commonalities between these drugs. I don't or between these disorders. I don't know all the commonalities, but one of them is this really habitual, rigid thought pattern. And people have stated that when they take a psychedelic, they are able to break out of these rigid thoughts, experience insights, uh, look at their problems or their life situation from a different perspective, um, and that this can drive, they think that this helps drive the symptomatic relief that they experienced for so long. Um, So that is also, I think, a really important thing to focus on. An important thing for me is, okay, maybe this psychedelic induced flexible state, whether it's creativity, enhancements in psychological flexibility. I mean, these are all separate constructs, but they are also related in some way. Something is going on here that people report, help them feel better when nothing else has been helping them feel better. So um, that was also mine, but also my supervisor, Kim Cowpers uh, rationale for pursuing this work. okay. Let's start with the, the kind of scientific definition of creativity and move from there.
0: Okay, let's start there. Yeah, let's before I mean, I have I have about six different ways I could take this conversation. But I think before we go further, (laughs) let's, let's put the definition that you're working with. I mean, we know there's so many ways to define creativity, just like psychedelics. It's kind of one of those things that's just hard to put your thumb on hard to pin down. So what is the working definition that you're working with in your lab? Yeah, so
1: what we have looked at so far, is this, um, yeah, creative output which you come to via these two um, kind of constructs of convergent and divergent thinking. So let's say you're presented with a problem, first you think of all the possible solutions for that problem, this is divergent thinking, Uh, and then you have to pick the best solution for this, Uh, this is convergent thinking, and then you make your choice and you you act on it. So this is how we have been looking at um, creativity so far.
0: Are you also adding a layer of originality and usefulness to that definition, which is a very, very common way of defining creativity?
1: Yeah, definitely. So uh, in regards to divergent thinking, so we uh, assess uh, individuals' divergent thinking abilities by the amount of new ideas they come up with, the originality, definitely. So... um, how unique are their responses compared to everybody else? Um, the ratio of this. So how original are the responses you gave? If you give a lot of responses, then you have more of a chance of being um, more original. So you can kind of correct for this. Um, and yeah, what we have not looked at is is usefulness, mm-hmm. uh, which we just brought up. That's, that is not something we have uh, gone through and assessed our responses for. Uh, I also find it difficult. <laughs> Is Who, how, who decides what is what is useful, especially when you are comparing one kind of altered conscious state uh, to another conscious state? So uh, I know that this is very important in the field of creativity, but when it comes to uh, psychedelics and creativity, I, I don't know. Maybe you have an idea how to define usefulness in, in that context.
0: Yeah, I think it's really tricky. So right now you're mostly looking at fluency, flexibility and originality. Mm-hmm. Right. OK, great. Yeah, and it's so interesting that most of us today are products of an industrialized education system that didn't really teach people divergent thinking. So we're all sort of, you know, uh, at a disadvantage. We're taught a lot of convergent thinking tools. You know, this answer, this is the right answer. Go for that right. answer. So it's an interesting time, and I'm I'm curious your thoughts on on a personal level, why this is important for us to be talking about divergent thinking and creative thinking in general. Like why for the average person listening who might think I'm not creative, which is a very, very strong myth and belief system that a lot of people have in our culture, but just sharing why this is so important for people to start thinking, actually, I am creative.
1: Yeah, I mean, this comes with the, the, the issue of how do you define creativity, of course. So I, I think when people think, when I initially thought of creativity, I thought of, I don't know, the Beatles <laughs> and Picasso and these people that uh, um, can produce uh, beautiful works of art. And of course, they are creative, not saying that. But uh, I mean, we're all creative. Um, we ha- creativity is divergent thinking, is being able to adapt to your situation right? And humans are exceptionally good at this. I mean, in daily life, we're we're adapting all the time. If I am driving home, and my road is blocked, the route I usually take, I have to figure out how to get home via different routes. So I have to go in my head and think of all the different routes I can take, which is divergent thinking. And then, of course, choose, okay, what is the best one? What is the quickest, Uh, which would be convergent thinking, and then I act. Mm-hmm. So, this is still creativity, but we're doing this all the time, constantly.
0: Mm-hmm. Right. I'm curious if you also break up the creative landscape with Mel Rhodes' model, the 4 Ps of creativity that he developed in 1961 where he divides it up as creative person, creative process, creative product, like the outcome of what the creative process is, and then the creative environment. Do you look at that at all? Cuz in some ways it's easier to think about when we look at aspects of creativity to think, okay, now we're talking about the creative person. Okay, now we're talking about the process that someone goes through. I'm curious if that's been a part of your, your framing.
1: Um, it is, it has not to be honest, um, but it, it's definitely very interesting to think about. Um, If, if I just think about it right now in, in regards to process, I feel like this is kind of what our studies are doing is where we're using psychedelics to, to modulate that process and see, see what happens after that. So we're kind of, uh, scientifically altering the process via introducing this psychedelic state and and seeing what happens. Um, But no, no, I have not uh, assessed any either.
0: Yeah, okay. I'll, I'll share some of that because I think it could be really yeah, interesting to look, at, to look at that through that lens. So the research that you have been doing and the longer that you are looking at psychedelics through the lens of creativity, could you say that the reasons that psychedelics help to treat depression and anxiety addiction, which is very focused on mental rumination, that a lot of those same underlying reasons are the same reasons and argument that we can say, okay, despite the lack of scientific research, we can make a case that psychedelics can enhance creativity?
1: Yeah, it's a good question. I actually, I don't have an answer for this. I don't have a a personal, um, I don't know, essentially. Um, Because through our work, what we're seeing is it's it's not do psychedelics enhance creativity or not. It's not so simple, Mm -hmm. right? So you have all the ways you can define creativity. You have different constructs of creativity. So we've talked about divergent, convergent thinking. Uh, In our work, we're starting also to look at more goal-directed versus spontaneous creativity. You also have other aspects that are parts of creativity, but are they still creativity? Insights, right? Um, Changes in kind of uh, like perception of meaning. Um, You have facets of awe, like all these things that are connected, um, but are not so clearly defined as, yes, this is creativity. Mm -hmm. So I think there are a lot of bits that suggest something is going on here, Mm -hmm. Um, but I think we need a lot more work to see, okay, what is it? What construct of creativity do psychedelics actually influence? And then once you have defined that, you're able to see, is this what is strongly correlating with how people feel after their psychedelic-assisted therapy?
0: Right. Yeah. So for example, like psychological flexibility, you know, there's that mediates, that plays a mediating role in the treatment of depression. And yet it's also linked to creative thinking and creative achievement. So in your thought process though, are there other dots that you're connecting like that, that are like, Oh, that's interesting. There's a parallel there because in some ways, you know, when we look at the research around the five H T two a, and I'd be so curious to get your thoughts on this, that it's really about, you know, enhancing neuroplasticity and adaptability to change, which is what you just said, which is a fundamental aspect of what makes us human, right? We have to yeah. make pivots and and be flexible in our everyday lives. So to me, it make it makes sense that, oh, you know, the same reason that psychedelics help us step off the hamster wheel of ruminative thinking that is marked by addiction, for example, where it's like all you go round and round and round with the same thoughts over and over again. And psychedelics sort of help enhance that window of malleability, of shapeability, of flexibility. Oh, I can choose a new thought. Maybe this isn't my reality. Maybe I can choose a new thought. That that would make sense, that that's also the same reason that enhances creative thinking. It really is, to me, the same thing.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I, I do agree with you that these are all very interrelated aspects. Um, but yeah, uh, it's it's a difficult question. I, I don't know, as I said, I don't have a strong... Uh, I, I want to know, and I, I'm trying to build it, but I don't have a strong opinion do psychedelics enhance creativity or not. As I said, they do enhance aspects of it. Insights, uh, maybe spontaneous, divergent thinking, psychological flexibility, um, You know, personality traits that are associated with creativity. So uh, openness, for example, we've seen in a few studies, this uh, sustained enhancements um, after certain months after psychedelic experience. Uh, they also reduce neuroticism. Mm-hmm. I mean, neuroticism hasn't been directly linked to to creative outputs, of course, but yeah, it is directly linked to this kind of ruminative, ruminative, anxious thought patterns, which kind of take up your memory capacity and and your your energy. If you're always focusing on these, you're never focusing on on, on and you're never able to look at anything else. You're never able to change your thoughts to maybe something more positive, more adaptive. So we know they also decrease these uh, types of yeah, kind of trait personality factors
0: mm-hmm. but again
1: these are all pieces to the puzzle so it, to me it would actually say no it's not just creativity that is inducing these long-term um, changes and in, and in, in thought patterns but it's so many different aspects together mm-hmm. uh, that lead to people feeling better
0: yeah i totally agree that it is such a big puzzle and there's a lot of different pieces and i think that yeah i feel like i can spend the rest of my life exploring all those different hidden <laughs> dots and connections. So it's it's yeah. amazing that you're doing that research. And I mean, I'm curious if you could speak to why it is from a researcher's perspective that despite, I mean, when you look at culture, for example, there are so many examples of people who... Start working with psychedelics on a personal level and just creative expression flourishes. So there's a lot of that in our culture and a lot of people wouldn't really argue with that kind of statement. And we have, you know, uh, Carrie Mullis and Steve Jobs and, you know, Alex and Allison Gray, you know, visionary artists, musicians, But why has it been that the research has been so limited in this space? I mean, I know it's hard to pin down and you're already speaking to that. Anything else that that you would add and contribute to that? just understanding for people because a lot of people could look at the, the psychedelic research and say, actually psychedelics don't make a case for creativity at all. And so what are some of the roadblocks that people are facing in this research space and how can we actually pivot and start looking at it through maybe a different perspective?
1: Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. Um, so research is limited. I mean, all psychedelic research has been limited or clearly due to the, the, legal issues with these substances and the stigma around these substances so initial creativity research was happening with these substances in the 60s and 70s and that all stopped uh, as soon as these drugs were scheduled Uh, so the lack of research into this although there's a lot of historical interest i I really just blame on the fact that people can't do it (laughs) Um, so yeah, there's now growing naturalistic work that's also an, a, a good option to try to look at indications of how psychedelics are, are altering these behaviors. But yeah, just people have not been able to bring people into the lab and give them a psychedelic and see what happens in regards to limitations. When, so when you're able to actually bring them into the lab and do it. Yeah, it's the question. How do we test this? Um, So I I won't go back on the definition of creativity. We we know this is uh, uh, difficult, but even on our working definition, let's say, we have these divergent and convergent thinking tasks. So the kind of gold standard to assess divergent thinking, the amount of ideas you can come up with is, is, is something called the alternate uses test. So you would tell people the name of an everyday object and you ask them to come up with uses for it. So for example, a chair or a brick. Uh, so then I give you X amount of minutes to sit down and write all of the different uses you can think of uh, for this brick. Well, when you're on a psychedelic, <laughs> are you going to are you able to do that? I mean, it's uh, your attention is impaired. Um, so you, you have a lot of stuff going on, right? So you're, you're uh, aware of um, bodily sensations, visual sensations or perceptual distortions. Um, Your working memory we've seen is is quite short. Um, Maybe you're not very interested or or you don't have high motivation to write all the things you want to do with a brick because you have so many other thoughts going on. Uh, Additionally, language, just finding words can be difficult for people. Even writing with a pencil is difficult. Um, So we find decrements in divergent thinking on psilocybin. But are these actual decrements in divergent thinking or are people impaired and not able to perform the task Mm -hmm. this is very this is a big question one i'm also very uh, want to try to answer and how how can we accurately assess whether psychedelics assess creativity or not given that they also impair functions that they need to do the task that said they also impair functions that are required for creativity right so you need attention to be able to uh yeah and working memory to keep all these thoughts in your mind and try to act on them so Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, this is this is this is difficult. Uh, so right. we hope to yeah, we're now going to be running more studies, uh, right, and, and trying to assess or define creativity in, in different ways, maybe ways that are are more, um, yeah, kind of relevant or better capturing of the thoughts changes that are going on during the psychedelic experience.
0: Right. And making it maybe more meaningful to the people who are exactly. in the study. Because it's like, if you were going to ask me uh, all the uses for a brick, I might just actually break out laughing, you know, yeah. and, and just yeah, be yeah, in like yeah. hysterical yeah. laughter for 20 minutes. Um, and I think it also depends on the 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 time that it's tested. I go through a journey arc where sometimes if I'm in like the peak experience of it, I just need to release and let go. And then maybe in the after phases of that, where I'm able to get up and move my body. And that's where I get some of my best ideas. And that's a very different window than in like a a peak experience. And then of course, Dosage, how much you're giving people. I mean, all of these are factors. I don't like writing when I'm working with psychedelics, but I use my voice memo. When I'm in a full channel and some really good ideas are coming through, I have access to a voice memo and then I capture that and I'll go back and re listen to it. And sometimes those ideas are irrelevant, you know, just like very profound insights like, water is life, you know, but it, yeah. it's something like that, but it actually is meaningful and significant. And then other times I do get incredible ideas that really do benefit. And then, yeah. And so I'm curious, like, what are some of the ways that we can actually make adjustments in the research that really allows us to be more effective in testing it?
1: Yeah, but exactly the, the suggestions you just made. So now we're trying to adapt our tasks so that there's no writing involved. If the, if, it does, if the task is language-based, then it is, would be a voice recording, so it's less efforts. Uh, that said, maybe we just shouldn't use any language-based creativity tasks, right? So, uh, there are now um, kind of AI-assisted creativity games where you it's all visual. Um, So you are making figures, and then you can assess originality, fluency, et cetera, on these figures. That's probably a lot easier to do in this psychedelic state. Um, Personally meaningful, exactly. I mean, when people report insights during a a, um, a psychedelic experience, a lot of these are meaningful. So they're inherently interested and motivated to to think about this. Um, So making the test more meaningful, so they're more engaging uh, for that participant as well. Mm-hmm. um but that, your example I, I think is a really good one so for example this insight that water is life um that means a lot to you right you say that it's insightful it's impactful you can carry that with you but when you think about the definition of creativity like their um ideas or problems that are useful how would you uh, then score that insight right because if, let's say I was uh, I'm a separate entity looking at this and your response on this is water is useful I, I probably wouldn't rate that as a very insightful novel original useful thought right <laughs> so that's what I mean is that how do we also uh, approach these uh, insights or thoughts that are very meaningful for the participants on who's having the psychedelic experience who's having any thoughts but not meaningful for the person rating them which is determining
2: the
0: outcome. Yeah, I'd love to speak about the paper you published, Spontaneous and Deliberate Creative Cognition During and After Psilocybin Exposure. Because I think that that's also another key point is that maybe we shouldn't actually be focusing on creativity acutely within the journey and focus on what is the aftermath of that experience. You know, it's not like, oh, I expect you to be able to be a better runner or, you know, all those... Some would say that LSD can definitely enhance physical performance um, acutely, but maybe it's more about the after effects of that. What's your what's your thinking about that? And I'd love to unpack some of this, you know, spontaneous versus deliberate creative cognition and what you found through this this research that you did.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Great question. Uh, So maybe I explain the research quickly, and then I can uh, comment on the rest. So this was a a study where we were, it was a placebo-controlled experimental trial. So we brought people into the lab, uh, and we gave them either a moderate dose of psilocybin. So they're definitely under the influence, but they were able to sit up straight and hold a pencil.
0: What do you define as a moderate dose? How, How much are we talking?
1: Yeah, so this was like... 13 milligrams of psilocybin
0: okay
1: uh, on average yeah so let's say like the the um therapeutic studies give about 20 25 mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so complete ego dissolving we we did have uh, people experienced feelings of ego dissolution but it was not complete and total uh, ego dissolution okay um so yes they, they came they received psilocybin and they performed um three measures of creativity So one was this uh, alternate uses test, how many things can you do with a brick? Uh, One was an association test. So they're shown a group of pictures and they're asked to make find the correct association. So this is the more logical association. This is convergent thinking. Uh, And then to come up with as many alternative associations as they can and explain why. So this was our divergent aspect. Um, So their responses on these two tests were then um, scored for fluency, the amount of responses, the originality, how unique they were, the ratio of these two aspects. Um, and also the AUT was, was scored for novelty. So afterwards we asked them to go through all of their responses of what they could do with a brick and just mark which responses were completely new. So they had never thought about this before. They had never seen it in a movie. This was just on the spot, a new idea. Um, So they completed these tests before they received any drug, uh, during the peak drug effects, uh, and then seven days later. And what we found is that on our tasks, they were impaired. So fluency especially was reduced. On one of the tasks, originality was reduced, uh, and convergent thinking was reduced. Um, Then seven days later, uh, they came back and there were either no changes or there are no changes on most things, but there was an increase in novelty. So the amount of new ideas they came up with to do with a brick. Mm-hmm. Um, additionally, on the acute testing day, they also filled out a questionnaire of spontaneous creativity. So this is just us asking them to think over their entire psychedelic or placebo experience and rates. To what degree did they experience insights into connections that had previously been troubling them? Um, To what degree did they have original thoughts? Uh, And here, yeah, in the psilocybin group, they had a a lot more, rated a lot more of this kind of spontaneous um, insights versus the placebo group. And what we saw, actually, was that the more spontaneous insights the more spontaneous creativity the day of so under a psychedelic the more new ideas they came up with seven days later Um, so this was a very interesting association for me to see so when i initially started i thought okay people take psychedelics they feel more creative they're in this psychedelic psychotherapy they're having all of these insights this is where we need to focus um, but yeah, of course, now what we've spoken about, this is very hard and how do we do it? People are impaired. Um, they don't want to tell me all the things that, that they can do with a brick. They're busy doing other things. But we do still see that the thought processes they're having that day are, are having an impact seven days later, or at least this is a correlation, right? But suggesting that the more spontaneous thoughts they have, the, their idea of spontaneous creative thoughts, the more new ideas they can come up with seven days later. So still highlighting the importance potentially of this acute experience and where their mind goes, but also suggesting that, okay, they're, they're, this, these changes in thought content do outlast the acute state and perhaps maybe open up kind of a window of opportunity where you are more flexible, whatever that means, whether it's creatively, psychologically, cognitively, that's still to be determined, but you are more flexible um, and perhaps this is a really good window to try to implement kind of adaptive behavioral changes that can then uh, outlast this window that maybe you can use months, years after the experience.
0: So interesting. I want to talk more about uh, just this notion of unconstrained cognition and as an underlying sort of pinnacle for how spontaneous and deliberate creative cognition can arise from because i'm curious about yeah the this notion that when we go into psychedelic experiences they're unconstrained and they're hyper associative states very imagistic and that we can't think of creative thinking and creative cognition as a single mental state. It's a fluid state of mind. Mm-hmm. When we diverge, it's one state. When we converge, and we're kind of diverging and converging all the time, moment by moment by moment, like what you said, when you're driving, you think of a lot of different options, but then you choose one like almost immediately. So it seems like it would be really hard to pin down the underlying neural mechanisms of creative cognition. And I'm curious if you look at this notion of, of unconstrained cognition as like a fundamental aspect of the psychedelic state, is that part of your, your thinking process?
1: Yeah. I mean, to me, it's it's synonymous with the psychedelic state. I mean, Mm -hmm. when you ask, Ask somebody to explain what it's like to take a psychedelic, it is this hyper associative, bizarre, surprising uh, experience that you are having. Um, uh, so, on the, the topic of spontaneous creativity, uh, at least some literature states that the most, um, yeah, the best example of spontaneous creativity is the dreaming state, mm-hmm. right? So that's, yeah, as again, completely, completely unconstrained. Um, hypersociative, etc., And people oftentimes compare the psychedelic state, some of the, or at least aspects of the psychedelic state, to dreaming. So I, I don't know, when I was reading over the definition of spontaneous, I just thought, okay, this is just what people have when, when they take a psychedelic. This is what they are experiencing. Mm-hmm. But yeah, how do we demonstrate that with a task? Mm-hmm that's what we're
0: working on (laughs) for people listening who aren't very familiar with the the concept or the definition of unconstrained cognition can you offer an explanation for what that really points to and why that's important
1: um well important is harder for me to say i mean unconstrained is yeah from my understanding is this very bizarre kind of random hyper-associated uh, yeah conscious state I don't know these thought processes so again like when you're dreaming you have no control over what's happening and um, you can see very or you experience very strange random phenomena um why that's important I mean I can only hypothesize on uh so if you think about uh these disorders that we're, we're talking about depression anxiety PTSD I would say that these are examples of an extremely constrained state' They're, yeah it's uh, everything is very um, it's very rigid uh, and people are having uh, abs- kind of obsessive ruminations uh, that's that uh, are just entirely negative right that they can't break out of whereas unconstrained it doesn't have to be negative doesn't have to be positive but yeah it's <laughs> I would say valence neutral but it's just very
0: random and bizarre. Mm-hmm. And then we go into this experience where everything feels novel. And are you looking yeah. at uh, functional fixedness or latent inhibition at all? Are those two constructs that are you looking at those at all? Uh, no, what you, what you? Yeah. So where, for example, like I'm constrained in waking consciousness to a sense of narrative about who I am and how the world works and a definition of a chair, for example. So I look at a chair and I know that a chair is for sitting and then I'm sort of stuck in this box of thinking in that way. And then when I go into unconstrained cognition and I overcome what we call functional fixedness, which is like, oh, the chair is for sitting only, but then I'm unconstrained and now I can break out of that fixed thought that, oh, now I can find all these different uses for a chair. Maybe I can use it to, you know, spin and do other things, dance on it or whatever, um, so, that would be an interesting construct to look at is how to overcome functional fixedness uh, as a measure of creativity, because that's where we can start creating new dots. Hyper associative, you know, we're able to have these illuminating aha moments, which is also part of the creative process. So, yeah, there's so much, so much interesting different factors to look at. Um, same mm-hmm. with, with latent inhibition. I'm curious, you mentioned earlier about. Um, the, this notion of spontaneous insight that people reported after, but during their experience, and this window after that maybe that is a good time to um, I don't remember exactly the term that you use, but implement some tools for adaptability. Have you been thinking about, okay, maybe instead of psychotherapy in the window of cognitive enhancement, the afterglow of the psychedelic experience, what if we taught people creative thinking skills? You know, and and help people think more creatively as a method, actually, for healing depression, anxiety, PTSD, addiction, and and has that been part of your thought process at all?
1: Uh, It hasn't been, but uh, I think it should be now. Yeah, um, yeah, that's that's a, a yeah, a really fascinating. Idea. So like the kind of the framework we've been thinking about and what we've been trying to assess through various uh, different studies. So this is our, our first experimental study. there are many more to come but we've also been using some naturalistic paradigms so going to ayahuasca or psilocybin retreats and assessing divergent thinking before they consume the, the substance and then the day after or seven days after to try to find if there is this window said—window of opportunity where um, cognition is is a bit more flexible. Uh, And what we've been finding is that, okay, so acutely is complicated. People report insights, whether these are insights or people just feel more creative, that's what we don't know. But on our tasks, which are also have all the limitations we've just mentioned, they show reductions. Uh, but then a day later, we see enhancements already in divergent thinking. And then seven days later, these enhancements remain. So our kind of thought process around this was okay if you are, um, let's say, in psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy. Maybe what we could take away from this is you you have your experience. We don't bother you, <laughs> right? You have your, your experience. Your mind is wandering um, you have this potentially enhanced spontaneous flexible state. And then the next day you come back, and here you start talking about it. And here you start integrating it. I mean, this is already, uh, of course, in the psychedelic assisted therapy model, but it's maybe again focusing on these insights and then saying, already, what are you going to do with it now? Mm-hmm. So, how, what can we learn from this and start implementing those behavior changes and start coming up with a plan within that seven day window when you're still flexible? uh to and how you're going to sustain those changes for longer um so whatever the this adaptation is if it's creativity training or 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 what have you i'm not sure um then uh, yeah i think that would be a a really nice uh, idea and what we're trying to to really look at is where's the time frame for this how can if creativity or flexibility is enhanced how can we utilize this to maximize on the experience and maximize long-term behavior changes.
0: Did anything really surprise you when you were reading about people's spontaneous insights? And did that, is that shaping your thinking moving forward?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. Um, In regards to the the spontaneous insights, so this is a questionnaire where people just rate the degree. Uh, They weren't telling us what these insights are. I mean, that's for future work. We would like to, to see what this is. And maybe you can even assess the uh, originality and fluency you and know, whatever of, of this, right? Um, so I don't have any, like, solid data to say this. But we, we do have reports from, from patients, um, also from our own uh, group, uh, where there's really seen people get a lot of relief from relief just from this lack of rumination. Mm-hmm. So I don't necessarily have to be having these these great original thoughts, but they are just able to break out of this rigid thought pattern. So whether it's just saying, okay, that tree is really beautiful, fine, maybe it's not profound and I'm not going to hold on to it forever, but they're able to think about something else. Um, and that surprised me. So I always thought, okay, you must have this meaningful interpretation that's going to change your life, but maybe that isn't the case. Maybe it is just a break from this incessant negative rumination that allows you to see that, hey, I can think other thoughts. Um, and then, yeah, in, integrate that. Right. Uh, try to maximize uh, on on this realization that yeah, there are other thoughts do exist. Uh, other thought patterns are you can have them, and work to to try to have more of
0: them. Mm, So interesting. Yeah, which is, again, to me, the way I see it is that consciousness is a spectrum. And, you know, they're the the same reasons that when people are struggling with addiction and have a novel thought is the same reason that, you know, even if you're, quote unquote, a healthy normal, although I don't love that term, but if you are, you know, just working with psychedelics, not to necessarily help treat depression, but you are thinking about, you know, life problems and things like that and enhance creativity and even defining, Creative thinking as a functional function of mental well-being, I think, is interesting. And even just reframing the question, can psychedelics help treat depression and reframing the question as can psychedelics enhance mental well-being, does that actually change the way that we're looking at psychedelics and perceiving them and what we're looking for, thus influencing the outcomes of that, yeah. you know? Mm-hmm.
1: But I'd like to to hear your thoughts. So this uh, suggestion of uh, creativity training,
0: do you have an example
1: of of what this looks like?
0: Yeah, there's so, so many actually. So in, for example, um, there's a lot of different, when we're looking at the four Ps of creativity and the breakdown, uh, and we look at, for example, the creative person. So I actually developed a new model that adds a fifth P, which is creative practices, for creative thinking skills that help creative problem solving process. So I don't know how familiar you are with the CPS process but there's like a whole formalized training. For example, one of them is foresight. Another one is the creative thinking skills model. And so I put together seven different big categories of uh, creative thinking skills. So growth-oriented thinking, visionary and ideational thinking, open thinking, embodied thinking, for example, playful and loose thinking, associative and contextual thinking and untethered thinking. And under all of those there are quite a lot of ways that you can train people to think more creatively under those categories and those buckets. And psychedelics actually we can make a case that they help us to enhance all of those those aspects. So for example, under visionary and ideational thinking, there's a prompt to visualize it richly and colorfully and psychedelics actually kind of already do that for us. But if we take that core aspect from the psychedelic experience and we bring that into a morning practice where we actually train people to think more visually and we know there's, I don't know if you're familiar with, um, Dr. Carson, she has this envision brain set model. And we know that people who, are very visual and imagistic are better at solving problems. You can visualize problems in your mind. That's very associated to creative thinking. So there's actually a lot of practices that we can teach people. I grew up as an athlete and uh, I was taught the power of visualization at a very very young age. Would run through. I used to dive. Competitively, So I would learn, you know, how to run through that in my mind. But when I started doing research on Olympic athletes and visualization, a lot of them said the same thing, that it's actually a, a skill that you develop. You don't just like automatically are really good at visualizing, but it's a skill that you develop. And so there's that example times I have about 50 different um, creative thinking skills that we can actually train for that actually psychedelics naturally help us with. Because yeah. we go into this like very, Imagistic, you know, fantasy realms. That's another one. Um, use fantasy. So we go into these psychedelic experiences, and maybe as children, we're really good at using our imagination. I, I love Sir Ken Wilson or Sir Ken uh, Robinson's um, definition of creativity, which is applied imagination. And so we go into these fantasy realms and psychedelic journeys, kind of reconnects us to childhood where we're very good at that. And that's also, you know, Dr. Robin Cart Harris talks a lot about that. And uh, there's another research, Gopnik, Alison Gopnik, who talks about, you know, the psychedelic state as a very similar to childhood spotlight consciousness versus lantern consciousness, which kind of in a way I associate to divergent, you know, hot searches versus convergent spotlight thinking. And as we get older, we get more and more and more rigid. And you also mentioned openness to experience where that lends it to opening our, our minds, thinking bigger, being more open to novel ideas, not shut down ideas. So another example would be in training people with divergent thinking, brainstorming was actually invented by Alex Osborne in the sixties. And there's some skills around that. So defer judgment, you know, so sometimes the inner critic when we're brainstorming is so there, we're just like, Oh, that's not a good idea. That's not a good idea. Training people to have more fluency and flexibility by actually just quieting the inner critic and deferring judgment, which takes practice practice. So all of these are different skill sets that we can teach people, to, to engage in, for example. But imagination is a really big one and learning how to apply imagination and taking an idea and a vision, which for people listening, many people have this experience where they receive an insight, a download, a vision in these psychedelic experiences. And that actually changes the course of the rest of their lives. And that's yeah. actually the process of anchoring a vision, making it reality and applying applied imagination to our everyday lives. So, I mean, yeah, I've created year-long training programs around this where we're looking at creative thinking skills training, especially for the leaders of our time, you know, and putting it in, in I don't know if you're familiar with the World Economic Forum in 2020. They said, you know, creative thinking is now called the most important skill set for the 21st century, especially for leaders. And we weren't trained in those ways of thinking as children. Yeah. It wasn't part of our curriculum. We were a part of an industrialized model of education. And I do believe that we can look to psychedelics to actually help inform that curriculum and that training and look at, oh, wow, there's so many aspects that are fundamental to the psychedelic experience that we can draw upon to then bring into waking consciousness as curriculum. Mm -hmm. Yeah, fascinating. Wow. Yeah, there's a lot. There's so much there. And, and even I'm curious, has this informed the way that you show up in your everyday life? The, the, the insights that you're having through this creativity and psychedelic research. Is that, do you ever practice, um, alternative uses test? I mean, is that part of, which is just like as a daily practice? Because that's actually another one when you, we talk about creativity training, we can give people examples like that just as a, a playful way to engage on a daily basis with that like cognitive flexibility and teaching people how to think differently. that's a that's actually a part of the curriculum too as one of many, many examples. But has this research informed the way that you identify as a creative person? like what's your own self belief about you as creative?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. It's not one I've I've reflected on actually. Uh, again, I, I was of the similar idea and okay, creativity, what is create a creative person? They're an artist, right? So they're producing this 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 work. Um so yeah, it wasn't actually until I dove into the literature, until I made the connection myself between this ability to adapt and think flexibly as being creativity, and how important it is as as you stated, just for general well-being and just for navigating our day. So just that uh, insight, <laughs> let's say, has has really uh, yeah made me aware of how adaptive I am. So if I have a problem, I do think okay, this is this is my uh, let's say automatic response to how to solve this problem. But let's play with that. Let's reverse it, right? So you can even mind map it. Let's see what are the other options, and, and maybe these these are better um, in the long run. Uh, it, I will say also, it has made me realize the kind of importance of just having an unconstrained <laughs> cognition from time to time, right? I mean, mm-hmm. we're always in our head. We're always focusing and very goal-directed. What do I have to do next? Okay, I have these things do. And then I have to go to the grocery store and I have to get, you know, A to Z. And just having that quiet time to just sit uh, and and just sit in your head, uh, I don't know, 10 minutes a day. Um, yeah, it can be can be very helpful, right? It's obviously also mindful, but uh, it's it does feel kind of like a little reset. Like, okay, I'm here now. I can disengage from all of that, just be present, and then move on with my day. Mm. Um, I don't know if I get any insights from it, but I feel a lot more calm. <laughs> that's that's for sure. Uh, so yeah, in, in some it's just realizing the importance uh, and uh, of um, these different perspectives and and how you in being able to navigate your, your life.
0: Hmm. You mentioned mind mapping. So when we talk about associative thinking as one of those categories that I mentioned, you know, mind mapping is also a great tool, teaching people how to mind map. I also teach um, associative thinking through Venn diagrams. So if you were to put, you know, psychedelics in one circle and creative thinking in another circle, what are all the parallels that you could draw? For example, how many dots can you connect there? That's another, another great one. And then there's one more I'll share with you, this other research that was looking at creative environment, which is another thing that's so interesting to me, um, the creative place and how we, our environments actually affect our cognition. So for example, we know that people are more creative when they're under tall ceilings versus short ceilings. And there's also another really incredible study that was done about um, dim illumination. So if people are in the creative problem-solving process, which again is sort of a, a scaffolding, a formalized process that illuminates each step of the way that is like, okay, now we're diverging and then we're converging and now we're diverging again and now we're converging. And when we're diverging, if you dim the lights, it actually helps put people in an unconstrained cognition because The boundaries of your cognition are then more uh, undefined. So there yeah. was this amazing parallel. I came across this one research study that was about yeah dim illumination and unconstrained cognition and how that helps more idea generation. We're also sort of less you know under the lights of of pressure and needing to to come up with an idea, but it actually increases risk-taking and, and putting out ideas that, you know, with, without that, that self-critic along the way. So, What I've actually done is I've spent uh, the last two and a half years looking at the overlap between creativity and all of these five P's of of creativity or psychedelics and the five P's of creativity and creative environment is also one of them as well. That's so interesting. And then when you start looking at the research that you're doing, it's like, actually, there are a lot of hidden variables in the environment that might be influencing people's cognition that you're not even aware of, you know, that we're not aware of. So there's so many, so many pieces there. Yeah,
1: so, uh, yeah, I mean, in in this, uh, I mean, we also, I mean, setting, as you you say, is is extremely important for everyday creativity, but you also know for the psychedelic experience. Uh, And uh, in our experimental studies, that is a, a, a strength and a limitation, right? A strength, and that's, I'm a psychopharmacologist, we like to control all these variables. But a limitation in that it can be—I mean, we try to make it warm and and comfortable—but it is it is you're you're taken out of your daily life, right? It's not necessarily ecologically valid. You're in a, another place that you're not familiar with. Um, it's it's bright, <laughs> as I said, it's, it's very controlled. There are there are people walking around you don't know. Um, so in in this study, right, we find this decrease in divergent thinking acutely, but in our um in a, another naturalistic study where we go to people where they're currently at the this, this ceremony in this space that is uh very supportive and warm and they, they have the intention also to to have these insights that's another aspect right sets mm-hmm. the intention and then we see the opposite then we see people can come up with more uses for a brick <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so these are these are definitely this is noise that's added in um so it makes it hard to come to any any conclusions uh like strong conclusions mm-hmm. um, actually on on environments i just saw a presentation the other day and they were looking at uh, creative performance in in virtual environments and they found that if you're on a virtual beach that you're more creative than if you're in a virtual office <laughs>
0: Makes sense. We get yeah, our best ideas exactly. outside yeah. in the shower <laughs> yeah. not actually research does show that we get our least creative ideas at sitting down at our desk during work hours.
1: Yeah. But this is also kind of constrained versus unconstrained, right? I also have this, if I'm really stuck on a problem, I'll, I'll go for a walk. And then you kind of, at least the, the focus, the pressure, the anxiety, whatever, it comes off a little bit mm-hmm. and you can have a little bit more fluid thoughts.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, yeah, m- maybe you want to also look at James Taylor's model, the five stage model of the creative process. Are you familiar? Uh I don't. Know. Yeah, there's James Taylor has a model and then there's also um yeah, there there's the creative problem solving process, but there's also James Taylor actually got this from the 20s from I think Wallace on the art of thought, but James put it as preparation, incubation, illumination, evaluation and implementation. And when you look at those five phases, incubation and illumination are actually part of what we could look at with how the psychedelic experience works with that kind of cognitive process. Like if we were to give it a framework that going for a walk is really helpful on day to day reality and sometimes taking a deeper dive into a psychedelic experience for that uh, incubation phase you know and then giving that space for illumination to arise which when i was doing my work in graduate school i referenced your paper on spontaneous insight and that's why i've been so excited to drop in with you because a lot of your work has actually been informing my thinking as well so i'm i'm grateful for your path too on such a no. such a deep level and and kim as well kim coopers Korp- yeah. she's amazing yeah. as well yeah. Yeah,
1: she's also uh, very interested uh, in in whether psychedelics do enhance, the, let's say, flexible cognition and what this means for the therapeutic process.
0: Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm curious with your research, What did you look at functional connectivity between the brain networks? And can we go sort of pivot into some of that? I'm curious what you found, because I think we also have to define, you know, uh the, the, the networks and within a network, how changes are happening within, within the default mode network, for example, and how that also is different from the way the default mode network is then connecting to other networks.
1: Yeah, 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 of course. Uh, so in, in this study, uh, I will say the caveat is that we were not um, collecting uh, brain activity while people were performing a task. So what happened is the individuals came, they were in our scanner, still during the peak experience. We collected resting state brain activity. So they were just focusing on a cross and uh, letting their mind wander. Um, and then afterwards they came out of the scanner and then completed our task. So this is not a causal uh, 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 measurements or, or results, but we, we looked at correlations, hypothesis driven correlations afterwards. So here we focused on three networks, which have been implicated in creative cognition. That is the DFOMO network, uh, which uh, yeah, Roger Betty and uh, other uh, creative neuroscientists, uh, creativity neuroscientists have assessed. So the DMN is involved in uh, idea generation. Then you have kind of the task positive network. So um, the executive network, which is involved in idea evaluation. And then you have the salience network, which is kind of shifting from one network to another. Um, so yeah, shifting the idea between between these two networks. So you have a you generate the idea and the salience network then shifts it to the from the DMN to the central executive network. Um, so we looked at within and between network connectivity during the psychedelic state. So within is kind of like the integrity, how strongly are the areas in the default network connected uh, during the psychedelic experience. Uh, and there we found that they are less connected during a psychedelic. This has been replicated. Yeah, all the studies that are looking at this type of connectivity in the brain have found this. So we found specifically like reduced integrity in the DMN. Uh, and then we looked at between network connectivity. So these resting state networks are usually anti-correlated, um, and what we found is, they after a psychedelic, they are no longer as strongly anti-correlated. So they are more functionally connected than um, when under a placebo. And again, this has been found in in other psychedelic studies as well. So this really like acute disintegration of these normally um, highly organized networks and uh, increased coupling of these networks, which are usually anti-correlated.
0: So my understanding is that more creative individuals, that when they've done research not related to psychedelics, that they do find more connectivity on a daily, on a just a regular reality, waking consciousness, that they're more connected between those three. Is that right?
1: Uh, yes, yes, that's right. So this, uh, so the the DMN and the central executive network are more connective and creative individuals than uh, less creative individuals.
0: Yeah. And the psychedelic experience does enhance that connectivity.
1: Yes, also doing this. So, But then we looked at the correlations between our be, our brain outcomes and our behavioral outcomes. So we found that the more of a reduction acutely in this DMN uh, integrity, this connectivity, the more of a, a reduction in how original people's responses are, but at the same time, a more of an increase in how uh, much insight people thought that they had. And also, the more of an increase seven days later in novelty. Um, so, it's kind of a confusing finding. Interesting. Yeah, I'm <laughs> At, so curious. curious. Like,
0: how do we make sense of that?
1: Yeah, good question. So, I mean, this, this idea that the, the DMN is uh, involved in, in idea generation, it would make sense that if you would then, if this network was perturbed, if it was not functioning as normal, then if this is a network for idea generation, then you would also have this reduction in performance. Um, but what we see, or at least what some studies have found that after psychedelic, you have kind of this rebound effect. So there's an acute reduction in within network connectivity of the DMN, but then seven days later, for example, there is an increase of connectivity within the DMN. Hmm. So also potentially supporting this. Okay. If the DMN is idea generation while well, you have enhanced connectivity, well, then, um, you are able to generate more potentially new ideas.
0: So interesting. Maybe you can help me understand this because it's been a a contention point that I've been grappling with around this notion of the default mode network and mind wandering. From the psychedelic research, it almost feels like, oh, when the default mode network is quieted, then is mind wandering enhanced? Because I feel like there's this narrative that mind wandering on one side is not good. There's like unhealthy mind wandering, but then actually when we talk about going for a walk and allowing the mind to wander, that that's healthy mind wandering. And so, but in the narratives with with psychedelic research, it seems like, for example, with Michael Pollan, when he wrote in How to Change Your Mind and drawing upon a lot of um, Robin Card Harris's work, we're sort of creating this story that mind wandering is not good.
1: Yeah, I mean that I, I can't comment so much on. I would just my initial thought would be that it's it's really the valence. So where is your mind going? <laughs> so not that it's going somewhere, but is it uh, and is it going somewhere negative? Right? Are these uh, negative thoughts about you or your situation? Are these positive? Are they random? Is, are you want? Is it mind wandering because you're bored? <laughs> um, or is it more like playful, creative, fantasy type mind wandering? So I I, I don't know. Uh, it, whether I'm assuming there are different types when some are good and some are bad, but the DMN role in that it, precisely I'm not I, I'm not sure on. Now I know um, that in regards to the psychedelic, psychedelic literature there's been a lot of focus on the DMN um, but this narrative is also changing a bit um, because there are there are many drugs that reduce integrity of the DformMO network, not just psychedelics. So alcohol does. Um, amphetamines I think also do so this idea that the DMN is is pivotal uh, in the psychedelic experience I don't think it's so easy Uh, of course you have drug specific effects we see across uh, psychedelic studies that there is this reduction in DMN active or connectivity but also this increase in DMN and executive network connectivity so maybe the focus is less on the DMN itself, but more on it, the DMN's interaction with other networks that could be more psychedelic specific.
0: Mm-hmm. Are you connected with Manesh Gurn? Are you guys friends? Um, I've spoken to him. Yeah, we
1: actually spoke about this paper, uh, his paper. Yeah, the one that's, that you uh, also yep. um, read. Uh, that was very important for me when writing this, this article to also give me a bit of a framework of, of what I'm working
0: with. <laughs> So yeah, he's great. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. I'm curious if we could talk a little bit about the role of glutamate glutamate, mm-hmm. and how that influences BDNF and why is that important for us to be even talking about and highlighting?
1: Yeah, yeah. So um, the psychedelics that we are discussing, these, these classic psychedelics like psilocybin, which is in magic mushrooms, LSD, DMT, uh, these all act on 5-HT2A, serotonin 5-HT2A receptors. Uh, throughout the brain. Um, but there are certain receptors in, in the cortex that uh, when they activate, so this leads to an increase in release of glutamate. Uh, and glutamate is an excitatory neurotransmitter. Um, when it's released, when it's, when it acts on something, then it makes it fire. Uh, and this is a very important neurotransmitter in regards to, to learning, right? Strengthening connections in the brain. Um, so it's been hypothesized and, and demonstrated in preclinical work, so with, with rodents and, and cell cultures, et cetera, that um, activation of 5-HT2A receptors increases glutamates, and glutamates then increases BDNF, which is a protein that's important in regards to um, integrity of neurons. So it's important for neuronal health. So it can increase neuroplasticity, so the yeah, let's say the, the health of neurons, the amount of neurons, the connections between neurons, uh, etc. Um, and there's a hypothesis that uh, depression and anxiety are characterized by um, neuronal malfunction in, in certain parts of the brain, like the medial prefrontal cortex. So the idea that psychedelics enhance neuroplasticity in that, in that brain area, they restore connection, um, which allows for adaptive hopefully beneficial behavior uh,
0: change. Has anyone looked at, or have you looked at the connection? Is there any literature or research that points to uh, 5-HT2A receptors, glutamate, BDM, BDNF, and creative thinking? Is there anything that's already out there?
1: Um, oh, so, yeah. So I we, uh, in a separate study, or actually this, sorry. Uh, so in this study, Uh, We also looked at whether psilocybin altered glutamates uh, in the medial prefrontal cortex and in the hippocampus. So uh, hippocampus involved in in memory, but also a a hub of the DMN and medial prefrontal cortex is this area which has been found to kind of, let's say, malfunction uh, during depression, uh, anxiety, etc., so we found that psychedelics do increase glutamates in the medial prefrontal cortex and decrease it in the hippocampus. So that was the first human study to show, yes, psychedelics alter glutamates. So, But we are not able to show neuroplasticity in the brain in a human. Um, it would have to be extremely invasive. <laughs> um, so we have shown it alters glutamates. Preclinical work has shown an enhancement of BDNF, so they're able to look at slices of rat brains and see enhanced neuroplasticity. Um, We have also at least taken blood samples in humans uh, during an LSD experience and found an increase in BDNF uh, in blood. So all the pieces are there, but we are not able to, it's not able to be done in one full human study. Uh, In regards to creativity, I actually did look at a correlation between glutamate levels in the medial prefrontal cortex and the hippocampus and how people performed on these creativity tasks. And I didn't find any association with, with glutamate in the medial prefrontal cortex. So I couldn't make that that link,
0: mm-hmm. uh,
1: unfortunately.
0: Maybe not yet.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, not, yeah. Yet, not yet. <laughs> not yet, of course. And again, as I said, we come to all the questions of, okay, is this the right construct of creativity that we should be looking at in regards to the psychedelic state? There's this was just the first study. There's so much more that's, that needs to be done.
0: Yeah. And what's to come for you? What are you excited about on the horizon? Oh gosh.
1: Yeah. (laughs) We have a lot, we have a lot going on. Um, Well, I I still, this is an area I want to pursue because I, I do think something, we know something is there, right? Individuals have insights, whether I mark them as original or not, these are insights that are very important for people Uh, And I think establishing the role of that in their therapeutic relief and understanding if we can modulate it to maximize this experience and make them feel better for longer. This is a big question and goal of mine. Uh, So we will continue these uh, experimental trials uh, with with LSD. We've just finished one with ayahuasca and looking at different aspects, different ways to define creativity or different aspects of creative cognition. So in one study, we're looking at semantic memory as kind of a, a, a proxy for kind of, uh, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, we're looking at semantic memory to see, see where that takes us. Um, and another study, we are going to try to assess the, the process. So instead of just looking at uh, is your response, your final response, creative or not, we want to see the search strategy. How did people get there? under LSD versus under placebo. Maybe this process is different, even if the outcome is is the same. Um, We will also be continuing a study giving LSD to couples. And we want to see actually, okay, are they more creative between them? (laughs) Uh, So how far can they get in in a certain creativity task on their own? And then what happens if they're together and they're bouncing ideas off each other? Can they get even farther? And what does this mean for their communication skills, their relationship quality, their feelings of intimacy after the experience. Uh, So this is another area that I'm really excited to go into.
0: (laughs) That's awesome. You know, and I love research. I'm totally all for, you know, academia. And I also like to remind people that we don't need science to necessarily catch up what, with what we know to be true in our own lives. And so for people listening who are like, yes, psychedelics make me creative, then that's awesome. You know, we don't necessarily need anything to, to validate that for people. What What's your thoughts about that?
1: I mean, t- to me, that makes me think back on, on uh, your statements on um, water is life, right? Uh, in that in science, we're all about objective <laughs> um, measurements uh, and, and we try to reduce the subjectivity, right? Because it's not hard data and numbers and whatever. Again, this is something that that I struggle with, and something we might never be able to capture. But when looking at whether psychedelics enhance creativity, it's hard. It's
0: hard to pin it down. I mean, really, yeah, you know, yeah,
1: no, it's it's hard to pin it down. Yeah, exactly. How how do you how do you measure something like this?
0: Have you seen people sit in ceremonies, for example? I mean, I've seen this so much where people will go sit in their first ayahuasca ceremony. They've never played music in their life, and within three months, they're popping out songs. Not that music is, you know, it's one form of many, many forms of creativity. You know, we need creative thinking for the sciences too. And I do see it so much where I'm like, wow, you go, you sit and you have this experience and then all of a sudden your creative channel starts opening. People Mm -hmm. start writing more poetry and they start engaging in creative expression in a different way. I see it so much. And then how do you measure that, right? How do you capture that, Do you think, what about doing studies with categories or sort of buckets of people, whether it's musicians or studies with artists, for example, do you think that that's potentially beneficial or even on the horizon? Um, I I definitely think it would be
1: fascinating. um, Also to look at the engagement between individuals and how how you you relate to somebody else also in the States. And again, how far you can go um, alone versus together. Um, we have not, we don't have any studies planned in, in regards to creativity in this, but I, I can definitely see it's happening. And this is also a very uh, good question to explore with the more naturalistic study. So going to where people are already doing this and, and trying to get an idea of, of of what's going on, trying to catch that. Uh, I think that's, that would definitely be fascinating.
0: Well, I hope some new insights sparked for you too yeah. during this. And maybe we could have a follow-up conversation and I can share some, some other ideas. I've really been thinking a lot about, oh, there could be other ways to frame creativity research around psychedelics. I mean, we spoke to so much of those obvious obstacles, um, but it would, be, yeah. it would be interesting to dive deeper.
1: Yeah, definitely. But this is also, I think, a very important avenue, actually, because uh, I am a psychopharmacologist. We are psychopharmacologists. We can run these trials, but we don't have the background knowledge into all of these facets of creativity. I mean, you asked me about various models, and, yeah, I don't know them. Uh, I can tell you a lot about receptor functioning and and, uh, how these drugs are changing the brain, and I can give you you theories, but it really is the collaboration that's necessary in order to uh, test this in an appropriate way, Uh, so a way that could actually capture what's going on versus the very, yeah, standardized, let's say, um, tasks that we've been using, and then to go from there. So these conversations are extremely important. (laughs) And uh, uh, and, uh, thank you for, for having the conversation with me.
0: You're so welcome. Well, let's consider it a seed planted and maybe a future collaboration will will come out of this. But I just so appreciate you and all the work that you are doing in the space. I really, I truly appreciate, yeah, just your dedication to to doing this research. I know it's been informative for me and the work that I'm doing. So I appreciate that. Yeah,
1: thank you so much.
0: Hi friends. Thank you so much for tuning into another episode of the psychedelic leadership podcast. If you've been enjoying the show, please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And I would so appreciate it. If you could leave me a review on Apple podcasts, as always, there are quite a few resources mentioned throughout this show, and you can access all of them by going to lauradon.co forward slash 53. If you would like to support the launch of Grow Medicine, please go to growmedicine.com forward slash support. I'm going to leave you with this song called Be Like Water by my dear medicine sister, Mary Isis. All right, friends, once again, my name is Laura Dawn, and you're listening to the Psychedelic Leadership Podcast. Until next time.
2: ¡Gracias!